Well, today's agenda is about this um, spirit of adoption and the orphan spirit that's, that's in the world. And, and honestly, it's in the church. And one of the prayers that Teresa and I have been praying so much for first Annika, when we adopted Annika, she was orphaned as a little baby. She was adopted at age three. She was part of a family for six years who then unadopted her. And that's how she came to be our daughter. So with her, we prayed and prayed that no spirit of rejection would pollute her heart. That, that when we told her we loved her, that she would be able to receive that versus the voice in her ear from the enemy saying, yeah, that's what the last one said, that's what the last one said. The prayer for the Tanyas now is that they're not moving from a big orphanage to a small orphanage, right? Because they can be fully adopted, absolutely legally, spiritually adopted, but still be orphans if they don't receive, right? So their thing is, it's, it's interesting. Annika was born in Cambodia, but really all she's known is America or Western. She lived in New Zealand for a few years. Um, but they're coming from the far other side of the world. You know, I guess kind of an Eastern West, not, not Eastern like Asian, but Eastern European culture into, you know, full-on Western culture. They don't speak English until God gives it to us. We don't speak Russian. But the point is, I don't want the devil in their ears telling them that it's just a different, littler orphanage, not a big orphanage, that they have to have the spirit of adoption, not the orphan spirit. So, all right, that's today's message. It's going to be about that. I talked a few weeks ago about privilege and calling and how it's really sad that, that the church lives below its privilege, and it's almost criminal that the church lives below its calling because we have high privilege and very high calling. And the enemy's objective is to steal our privilege as sons and daughters, to get us to think that we're not fully sons and daughters, to get us to focus on the mistakes that we made and, and the sins that we've committed or maybe are committing and miss out on understanding the privilege that we have as God's very children. And that privilege then leads to our calling. So if he can steal our understanding of our privilege or, or our sense of having privilege, he can greatly diminish our effectiveness in our calling. But it's important that you understand that when I make those kind of comments, that you understand that privilege stands by itself. That as a son or a daughter, Ryan, Joe, Chris, excuse me, that's Ryan's wife, Krista, Annika, the two Tanyas, they're privileged as daughters and sons just because they're daughters and sons. It's not that privilege is just a means to an end, that God has a job to get done, so he provides you a privilege so he can get his work done. All that is true, but privilege stands by itself. The fulfilling of the calling is the fruit of the privilege, not the reason for the privilege. So as sons and daughters, we have the privilege of being sons and daughters just because God's our father. Okay? So it's important to calling, but it's not the purpose for calling. Our calling is to love our neighbors as ourselves. But loving our neighbors as ourselves is the fruit of understanding who we are. And understanding our privilege allows us to do that. Okay. I'll give you an example. My love for Annika is no different than my love for Ryan and Joe, biological children. But the expression of my love towards Annika is dramatically different than the expression I had. And I don't want to tell you that you know I didn't love Ryan and Joe or express love towards Ryan and Joe. I really feel like I did. But 
the expression towards Annika and, and towards the Teutonias is very different than what it was towards them. And the reason that it's different isn't because Annika is more lovely or more lovable than Ryan or Joe. I don't have any more love for her than I do for them. But I didn't know God when they were Annika's age. I had never met God. I'd never been in church. I had no understanding of any of that. And to some extent was an orphan relative to a father relationship because my, my own biological dad passed away when I was 11. So I could only express love to them in the context that I understood and received love. Remember, the Bible says to us that we love God because he loved us first. Right? We didn't choose to love God and then he responded in love. He always loved us and our response as we come into understanding his love is to love him back. Right? So, as I came to understand my privilege and my place with my Heavenly Father, my ability to express love to my own children was dramatically enhanced. So, I had to pray that Ryan and Joe don't succumb to any lying spirit that would say, oh, you know, we're yesterday's news or we're old hat or we're whatever because they can see a different expression towards Annika or, or the Tanyas when they get here than they saw towards themselves. Because that would be the orphan spirit trying to draw them back out of that place of sonship. That's an example. Teresa had a powerful experience with God when we were in Canada one time. I mean, like four hours on the floor, couldn't get up. Powerful. I mean, the, the Lord just invaded her, herself. Wrecked her in a good way. I prayed and prayed and prayed for that same father's love experience. I, I, I prayed all the time, God, I need that. I, I don't understand who I am with you. I don't understand what it means. I mean, to some extent, of course, but there's always more. And I don't know how many years later, we were in um, Minneapolis at a healing school learning how to you know, pray over the sick. And they were having like a worship service and a communion service. And the speaker was a guy named Randy Clark, just awesome. And he said, now don't take communion until you feel communion with the Lord. So just, just worship and pray and, and sit in his presence. And when you actually can sense a spiritual connection, a communion with the Lord, then actually you can just take the communion yourself. So we went and got the stuff and I was sitting down and... Um, I was praying and worshiping and just kind of following his instructions and, and I felt God's presence and I took communion. All of a sudden, when I took communion, I had a vision. It was, it was like, I mean, it was like a movie playing in my mind. And I was sitting in a chair and I felt this, um, this sense of, I don't know what the right word is, importance, but it's not importance. And maybe you'll get what I mean when I tell the rest of the story. But I, I felt like, I was in some place where I was meant to be. And as I looked down, I saw Ryan and Joe at my feet. And as a father, you always want your sons or your daughters, you always want them to value what you have to say, right? But lots of times, you know, the last person that a kid wants to listen to is his parents. I could tell them the sky is up and the ground is down, and they'd say, no, it's not, no, it's not. And the neighbor could tell them, and they'd say, amen, right? Kind of just how it is. So... I never really had that sense of my son, son saying, wow, Dad, you know, you have good wisdom. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with me. And that was the sense of what I thought was kind of happening in this vision. And it just made me feel so good. And then all of a sudden, it just flipped. And I was sitting at the floor, 
And I looked up and God was there. I mean, he gave me the sense of what it meant to be the father in the way that it blessed me the most. And then he put me in the seat of the son. And I got to enjoy, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, Teresa could tell you, I was weeping like buckets of tears. I was so in the presence of God. And it brought me to a new place of relationship with God from experience with God. So when we talk about like Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings and we pray, God, just be so gracious to come and just reveal yourself a little bit, it's because in the revelation of God, there's no response beyond worship and love. It's just not possible. I mean, sometimes you might get a sense of his holiness and it might make you go, whoa, like Isaiah did when he went to the throne room. But basically, for us to have a full and rich understanding of God as Father is huge. That's what this is about today, is that there's a spirit that wants you to be an orphan. It wants your children to be an orphan, even though they got parents, that we have to come against so that we can walk in the safety and the security and the peace and the fullness of what it means to be full-on heirs of God. Okay. All righty. So as we come into understanding and acceptance, right, not just to know, but to accept, to receive um, our privilege, it drives an understanding of our identity. See, ultimately, that's the attack, is on our identity of who we are. When Jesus went into the wilderness, after being affirmed by the Father. He gets baptized, he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends out of the sky and, and, and uh, rests on him, and the voice comes down and says, this is my son, and him I'm well pleased. I love you. Whatever the words were, but they were affirming words, right? And then the Holy Spirit immediately leads Jesus out into the wilderness, and for 40 days he eats nothing. He's at his very weakest point, and Satan comes to attack him. And the attacks, the first two attacks were on his identity. He said, if you are the son of God, then this. Because if, if he could get Jesus to doubt his identity a little bit, he could have an impact on God's plan for Jesus' life and then ultimately for the whole world. That's the plan for him against us, is to, is to steal our identity. So as we understand the privilege, it, it, it enhances our understanding of who we are because the privilege comes to sons and daughters. Romans 8, 14-17 reads, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So as we come into knowing Jesus in his life, through the glory and through the suffering, through faith, like he had faith, we come into that, that knowledge of our privilege because we are heirs. We are sons and daughters. If you don't see yourself as a son or a daughter of God with full, I don't know what the word is for being an heir, heirship, heirness, you know, whatever it is, full rights that come with that, not secondary rights, right? Annika's not secondary to Ryan and Joe. She's equal to Ryan and Joe. Just a different path into the family. The two tiny, same thing, different path into the family. We are equal co-heirs with Jesus and sons and daughters of God himself. Heidi Baker, um, we, we quote Heidi Baker a lot. Heidi, if you don't know her, she and her husband are these amazing missionaries. Uh, they were in China. They've been in Mozambique for probably 20 years. They've planted... 10 or 15,000 churches out in the bush bush in Mozambique. 
Um, gosh, I don't know how many miracles people raised from the dead. I'm one of the guys in their ministry literally has been given, I think the last I heard, now this is probably five or six years ago, 13 languages divinely as he went into places that hadn't heard the gospel. He just spoke their language and when they spoke, he understood it. 13 different times. That's why we have faith to believe. When we get over there, we'll just speak Russian because God's able to do that. Okay, so Heidi talks about when she first went to Mozambique, she would go into the dump. Like, <laughs> the dump was the richest place for a harvest if you were a starving orphan child in Maputo, the capital of Mozambique. In, in, in our dump, you might actually find some good stuff because, you know, we use stuff up and we get tired of it and we throw it away and it ends up in the dump. But these kids literally lived in the dump. The other missionaries wouldn't even go in the dump. The stench was so bad. The flies were so overwhelming. But Heidi would go into the dump and she would love and minister to these children and then she would bring them home. She would literally adopt them. And when she would bring them home, what would happen is they'd stick around a little while, she'd give them clothes to wear, they'd give them a blanket for their bed, and then they'd be gone. The clothes would be gone, the blanket would be gone, the children would be gone. They'd go out and they'd find them and they'd bring them back. And they'd run away and they'd bring them back and they'd run away and they'd bring them back and they'd run away. She said, it's because they didn't see themselves as sons and daughters. They, they still saw themselves as orphans. And an orphan hoards. An orphan always tries to get what they can because there's no assurance that something's going to be there for them tomorrow or the next day. So they get everything they can today. And you don't receive sonship in fear because you're afraid that someone will take it away. So you hold your heart. You guard your heart. So this is what was happening with these kids in Mozambique. And she said every day when they were there, they would tell them, hey, it's all yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. And she said the, the, the way that they would know that they had moved from orphans to sons and daughters is they would open the refrigerator and they wouldn't just they would ask could could we have a coke yes you you can have a coke they would drink a coke there would be cookies on the counter you can have a cookie if you want they'd take a cookie and eat it she said when that spirit was broken over them they didn't ask they opened the fridge they didn't drink one coke they drank all the cokes <laughs> they didn't ask for a cookie they ate all the cookies can you see the picture that's the difference between the spirit of adoption and the orphan spirit the cookies were always theirs but they're afraid if they took some, they wouldn't be able to have any more cookies. But the son understands, hey, I don't know where those cookies came from. They're there today. There'll be more tomorrow. As much cookies as I want, I'm going to have. That's being a son and a daughter, especially in God's economy. The deceptive ploy of the enemy is to steal our identity, hide our privilege, and ultimately shipwreck our calling. The Apostle Paul addresses this very issue to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 9. Now think about this in the context of what we've been talking about. He says to the, the, the people in this church, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? See, he says you're no longer a slave, you're a son. But you keep turning back, you keep turning back, you keep turning back. Why is that? Because there's a force in this world that doesn't want you to know you're a son. 
And he keeps lying. See, that was happening in the Galatian church. These, the enemy used these false teachers to come in and tell them that you can't be a Christian unless you're a Jew first. So you've got to have all this Jew stuff before you can have the Christian. And they were falling away from their faith because they were grasping onto something more than what had been given to them. But they didn't need to. They were full-on sons. They had to choose what they had heard at the beginning and what brought them their faith, what brought them their sonship versus these lies that were coming at them. And the, the enemy is constantly trying to draw us out of that understanding of our sonship. In uh, Galatians, again, chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. See, we have to choose what we're going to believe, and then we stand firm. The Word teaches us. It's the only truth we have. The Word teaches us. The Holy Spirit affirms the Word inside of us. We have to decide what are we going to believe. Someone says, you know, my life is a waste. I'm just a loser. I can't accomplish anything, blah, blah, blah. It's like that is a flaming arrow that comes from the enemy trying to penetrate your shield of faith and get you outside of your identity. The Word of God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't make mistakes. Every single one of us is absolutely perfect and unique because that's how God made us. Now, we're born into a fallen world, and we sin, and we own that sin. It's ours. We did it. But it doesn't change who we are. That's just what we did. So you have to decide what are you going to believe. They had to decide what are you going to believe. They didn't even have the New Testament scriptures. We're so blessed to have the New Testament scriptures. And then we have to stand firm in what it is we believe. Understanding that the storm, remember Jesus said, right, the storm is coming, there's a house that's built on the sand and a house that's built on the foundation that's a rock. And he says that both of the people whose houses, they're they're represented by these houses, heard these words of mine. The difference is the one whose house was founded on the rock did them. You have to stand. We have to stand. And we have to stand with each other. If I get into some kind of a thing about, oh, you know, I don't know. You have to tell me, no, this is what God says about you. You have to remind me and I have to remind you to stand firm because, man, if you read the New Testament all through, especially the Gospels, the one who remains until the end, the one who stands firm, the one who endures until the end shall be saved. He said that because he knows that there's a storm coming. There's going to be challenges against your faith, and we have to stand in our faith. That's what Paul's trying to tell the Galatian church here. There's two manifestations of spiritual influence, and one is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit into our lives, and the other would be the manifestation of of the enemy's spiritual influence in our lives. And and for today's specific conversation, it's, it's in in the sense of an orphan spirit trying to steal from us. The orphan spirit is manifested in people's lives by um, the influence of the enemy and the fruit of the orphan spirit is slavery, fear, and lack. Now, maybe there's more fruit. This is all bad fruit, of course. But the Bible would teach us in these verses that the, the orphan spirit, if we see ourselves in a place of being once again in a yoke of bondage, like a performance yoke, right? Oh, man, God's so mad at me because I didn't read my Bible today and, and I didn't you know, go and do 10 works today. That isn't the source of our relationship with God. Jesus, our faith in Jesus is the source of our relationship. All that stuff is the fruit of the relationship, right? So if you see yourself back into that kind of a place, that's a hint to you. That's a red flag. If you see one of your brothers and sisters that you love in that kind of a 
mental conversation, that's a red flag that, that some of those flaming arrows have gotten through the shield of faith and they're starting to attach themselves to lies. The adoption, the spirit of adoption, is manifested in our lives by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And its fruit is um, privilege, identity, freedom, and the actual crying out of Abba Father. See, the crying out of Abba Father isn't a cry like, where's my daddy? It's, oh my gosh, I have a daddy. Abba is the Aramaic actual, it's just, it's just a, not a translated word. Whenever they were saying this Abba Father, they were saying an Aramaic word and a Greek word. And they chose to translate the Greek word to Father, but they just left the Aramaic word alone. Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Make sure everybody gets it, that the actual cry of Abba, Father is the fruit of understanding your identity. Because you can cry out. It's like when uh, the writer of Hebrews says that we can approach boldly the throne of grace. You don't go to God's throne, Jesus' throne, boldly if you don't understand your relationship. You'd be a little like, whoa, I don't know about that. I'm a sinner, I'm whatever. No, you go boldly because you understand that he's waiting for you, having experienced every trial and temptation with a heart that understands what you're going through so that you can receive mercy and grace from the one who is the source of both. Amen. So there's a guy. His name is Jack Frost. He's a, uh, is he alive still? Jack Frost went to heaven. Jack Frost, <laughs> he's not a snowman. He's a, he's a guy that God used to teach about the Father's heart of love throughout the whole world. I mean, he's a very well-known guy. And he describes the orphan spirit this way. He says, the orphan spirit causes one to live life as if he does not have a safe and secure place in the Father's heart. He feels he has no place of affirmation, protection, comfort, belonging, or affection. Self-oriented, lonely, and inwardly isolated, he has no one from whom to draw godly inheritance. Therefore, he has to strive, achieve, compete, and earn everything he gets in life. It easily leads to a life of anxiety, fears, and frustration. That's a really excellent... Now, see, a person can be saved. A person can be born again and struggle in this way because of the attack of the enemy. Fortresses, strongholds, these places that we see truth, not truth, but, but we perceive truth. Yeah, our belief systems can be so twisted. And, and once we start to give ourselves over to those kind of thoughts, the stronghold gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So, so if you sense any of those things, any of those kind of sensings, in yourself, you got to know that, that, you, that the battle is on. And, and you need to come and get prayer or, or, and pray and read the word and let the Holy Spirit tell you who you are and whose you are. Come the orphan spirit functions in a person as a stronghold. It's a, it's a fortress from which lies operate in our lives. It's fueled by flaming arrows, right? If you read Ephesians 6, you see that the, the flaming arrows that are extinguished by a true shield of faith. True faith will always, the knowledge of truth in faith, will always extinguish the flaming arrow. The flaming arrow says you're a loser. God says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Flaming arrow, out. I agree with God. Its ultimate goal is to corrupt and define, corruptly define our identity, and its operation is in fear. It's always a, a fear-based kind of thing. But if Jesus is our Lord and Savior... The orphan spirit is nothing more than just a lie. 
and the truth unveils the lie. It has no power in and of itself. It isn't a power spirit. It's a lying spirit. Its only power is the only power that the enemy has, deception. So there's three keys that you want to think about. The first is, how do you see God? What is your perception of God? Is he this big, mean, scary person in heaven that's just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can fire some lightning down on you? How do you see your relationship with God? See, I didn't see myself the way Teresa saw having a relationship with God, especially after the experience that she had in Toronto. But then I had an experience with the Lord. And, and, and I think to some extent I had the experience because I asked for it. I prayed and prayed and prayed and asked for an experience so I would understand his love better. And it changed my perception. My whole perspective changed. So how I see God in relation to me is dramatically different. And Lisa's going to talk to you about, well, unless the Lord tells her otherwise, but she, she may talk to you about um, ministry and sozo. And, and really, if I'm not mistaken, what sozo is all about is to help you understand where you are in relationship to God. Is he far away or is he close? Are you far away or are you close? The third question, excuse me, is how do you see yourself? Fearfully and wonderfully made? Loser can't get out of my own way. The first one, how do you see God? 2 Corinthians 10.5. And literally, this verse speaks to the very essence of spiritual warfare. If you've heard of spiritual warfare, this is the essence of how it gets dealt with. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, about who God is. If there's a speculation that's outside of truth of who God is, that's what we're wrestling with, that speculation that's outside of truth. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Would Christ tell me that I'm a loser or would he tell me I'm fearfully and wonderfully made? If that thought comes into my mind, I have to stand it next to the truth. And if it doesn't stand looking like the truth, it has to go down. Because if I let it stay in there a little while, what happens? Fortresses get built. He starts to build those fortresses. And then his lies become my truth. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whenever I'm like, God, you're not meeting my expectations. I'm doubting. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It could be however many kids got killed in an elementary school by some demonic person in Connecticut. And I've looked at heaven and I say, God, seriously, are you in charge? Do you really love us? How can that happen? He, he reminds me of sending Jesus. When we were in Mozambique that summer, we were worshiping. I mean, there was probably a hundred of us. Just outside, under a tent, no, no sides on the tent, dirt floor, worshiping, and the Holy Spirit dropped like a bomb in that place. I mean, people were weeping, and they were so beautifully being touched by the Lord, and I was like, I might have had about as much softness as this thing. I've got nothing. I didn't feel his presence. I didn't sense his presence. And all around me are these people that are just wrecked. They're just being blown up by the Lord. And I was getting frustrated. So I, you know, I'm a good Christian. I prayed a little bit more. I praised a little bit more. And nothing happened. And finally, I got so frustrated. I looked up to heaven and I said, Jesus, where's my love? Like, you're loving all these people, but you're not loving me one bit. I keep saying I went into a vision. I think I don't get these things, but I guess I kind of do. I had a vision. I had a vision. And in my vision, it was like I was on earth. And Jesus was bigger than the sky. He was like this huge person up in the sky. I could see him from the earth. 
And he was looking down on me. And he had this expression on his face that like, like if your kid asked you for money and you gave him a million dollars, you know? And they looked and they said, Dad, where's my money? You'd be like, I gave you a million dollars. I don't have any more to give. That was the look. He's like, he's like, I don't know what else I could do. And then all of a sudden I noticed the angle that I was seeing Jesus' face through was through the hole in his hand. Yes, 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 it's my story. The point is, I was ruined at that point. I'm like, Jesus, forgive me. There's nothing more I could ever ask from you. Your love is perfect. See, so I had to get a picture. I had to see God through truth. It didn't matter whether I was getting rocked in my emotions or felt his presence. The truth was that there was nothing more he could do. Everything was done, and it was the perfect expression of love. So for me to ask Jesus, where's my love, was nonsense. And God, in his grace, let me see it in a way that, trust me, made me get it. I mean, I totally got it. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the foundation of how we see God has to be that he's good. And, and if something in our life happens that you feel like if you could have controlled it, it would have been good to not happen that way or happen differently, it can't be how we perceive God. See, God's thoughts are greater than our thoughts and his ways are greater than our ways. And we try to transpose our own self onto God, which is silliness, right? So if anything ever causes you to have any kind of perception of God other than he's good, that his purpose for you is best, then you have to take that thought because it doesn't stand true to a knowledge of God, an actual knowledge of God, and cast it down. He is always good. Okay, the second one, and I'll hurry up. Do you perceive your, or how do you perceive your relationship with and to God? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he taught his disciples to pray, said, pray this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus, in that statement, was defining our relationship as sons. You don't pray to your uncle and call him father. You don't pray to your, your you know, un, unfindable God and call him father. You pray to him as father if he's father. So Jesus is helping to define the relationship. And then, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying this amazing prayer and he, and he says this to the Father, Jesus to the Father, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them and loved them even as you loved me. See, the world has to see that the love of God for his church, his children, us, is exactly the same love that he had for Jesus, his first begotten. I talked a bunch about this. How do you see yourself? In Psalm 139 and verse 14, David says, I give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. David spent days and nights in the shepherd's field with the sheep, singing songs to God, having relationship with God. David was a man after God's very own heart. And David recognized that even in, right, David was not like the best character guy. He wasn't a great dad. He was a murderer. He was a, an adulterer. But he didn't see himself 
through the things that he did. He saw himself through that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And he believed it so much that he said his soul understood that. It wasn't just like um, an acknowledgement. His mind, his will, and his emotions were all in agreement with what God said about him. Galatians, again, 4, 6 through 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You have to ask yourself, am I a son? Am I a daughter? Yes. What about when things don't go right? Wow, this is another expression of your love for me, Father. Because you're trying to shape me. See, the... the the governmental relationship of God's world is kingdom. It's not democracy. It's not democratic republic. It's not anything but monarchy. And a monarchy is the very best system of government you could ever have with one condition. The king needs to be good. If the king is evil, it's a horrible way for the people to live. But if the king is good, then a monarchy is the very, very best kind of governmental structure you could have over your life. And God, or a father, always wants the very highest for his children, right? So if God knows that we are going to rule and reign with him, and he exalts humility and lowness, then he has to provide us opportunities that in our flesh don't feel like a loving father, but in his knowledge of trying to raise us up to be princes in his kingdom, right? He has to use what he has to work with us to shape us into his very character so that we will rule and reign as he rules and reigns. That's the mental perspective we have to see in our trials and our tribulations and what seems like lack. There's never lack. Jesus, when he was about to be um, beaten, was it Pontius Pilate who said to him, don't you know I have the power to kill you or to not? And he says, you don't have any power that's not given to you. I could call down... What, 10,000 angels, 10 legions, some kind of crazy... I, I mean, seriously, dude, dude. I didn't eat the brownies. But, but Jesus looked at me, he's like, you so don't understand who I am. I'm doing this because my father is bringing about his will. And, and this is going to happen because it has to happen. But if I chose not to, because he was in free will too, I'd just call the angels down, they just take care of all this mess, and i go sit back on my throne again. Because he's good and he knows what's best, he allows what he allows so that we will be shaped in the likeness of his son. He's always good. Your perception of yourself has to be the perception that he has. Ultimately, whether you're operating in the spirit of adoption or the orphan spirit, it's a stronghold. We, we think of strongholds in the context of bad, 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 but a stronghold that's built in truth is good. Right? So as you read your Bible, as you commune with Holy Spirit, and he reinforces what he's taught us in God's word, we build strongholds that tell us how to see life through the stronghold of truth versus the stronghold of deceptions. I've said this a number of times. I'm not sure where I learned it because I don't have an original bone in my body. It's probably Bill Johnson. But we empower what we agree with. So if the enemy speaks to us and says you're a loser and we agree with it, we empower our lives to reflect that, our, our very perception of ourselves. But if the Lord says, no, you're fearfully, wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made and you're my son with whom I am well pleased and you agree with that, you empower that sense into your life. Henry Ford is quoted as saying, 
Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have to decide how you're going to think. I'm not sure it's a perfect application, but I think it's Proverbs 27 or 23 that says, as a man thinks, he is. Right? So where you put your mind is where you are. I'll just close this way. In Jude, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, there's only one chapter in Jude. He says, Beloved, while I was making every, every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. What the Lord has given us must be contended for. It's a free gift. You don't have to pay for it. You get it 100% when you come into agreement with the truth. When you decide sincerely from your heart that Jesus will be the Lord of your life and that your faith and your trust is in him as Savior, you got it. And the enemy tries to steal it. And the enemy tries to steal it. And you have to, I have to, contend for the faith that's been given to us right to the very end because he's not going to give up on trying to steal back. The, The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and to seek and to save that which was lost. We have to contend for our faith. It's not like, oh yes, I got it. And I just cruise until the end because the enemy is not going to stop trying to steal your identity. Take away your privilege and diminish your calling. So go back to 2 Corinthians 10 again. For though we walk, this is the how of the whole message. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How do we win the battle with the orphan spirit? Jesus says, if you... If you abide in my word, I don't think abide is the word he used, but, but basically if you abide in my word, you will, know the tru- you will truly be disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's the knowing of the truth. It's the acknowledging of the truth. And it's the walking out of the truth that will cause you to tear down the strongholds. The every effort of that lying spirit that wants you to feel like you're not a son and you're not a daughter. See, the weapon of our warfare, if you go to Ephesians 6 and you look at all of them, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the shoes of the readiness of the preparation of the gospel of peace. If you boil every bit of that, if you took all that armor and put it in a pot and boiled it down to its very essence, it's truth. Righteousness is walking in truth. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, is truth. The faith that's your shield is when you exercise faith as truth. The breastplate of righteousness is when you walk in truth as righteousness. The belt is just truth. The sword is the word of God, which is truth. That's the essence of the battle. Are we going to believe the lie? Are we going to believe the truth? So when we close today, or as we close today, I was, I was praying, and, I, and I, I just had an uneasiness about praying, like breaking the, the spirit, the orphan spirit off of ourselves and, and, and others. Because it's, it's really not so much, I'm not sure that prayer would be answered. Because the, the orphan spirit operates based upon our agreement with it. Not on any power or any breaking. So I'm like, Lord, well then what do we pray? And the prayer is that the orphan spirit, that the lies would be exposed. And that the truth 
would expose right anything that lives in the dark doesn't grow good but once you put it in the light and the light is the truth so that's the prayer that I want to pray over all of us and I want all of us to pray over Tanya and Tanya you know we're blessed to have um, many children in this church today that that spirit be exposed for what it is and that that each and every one of us especially these the children that are coming into new families that they would understand that that they didn't move out of a big orphanage into a little orphanage that they moved from a place over there to a family and that they are full-on sons and daughters that there is absolutely no less privilege no less in their inheritance than 100 percent